How's it going, everybody? And welcome to episode 162 of Master My Garden Podcast. Now, this week's episode, we're going stateside again and an exciting interview. Looking forward to it. And I'm talking to Andrew Bunting, who's the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society Vice President of Horticulture. Um, for the rest of the podcast, I mightn't use all of that terminology and we refer to the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society as PHS, just for for easiness sake. Um, but what we're going to talk about is a survey that PHS has done on gardening tre- trends for 2023. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, are the trends that we're seeing here on this side of the Atlantic quite similar to what Andrew and his team are seeing over there. So firstly, Andrew, you're very, very welcome to Master My Garden Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I know it's afternoon there already. It's uh, just the start of the day here. So uh, appreciate you having me on. No problem. Delighted to have you on. And yeah, you'll be nice and fresh first thing in the morning there. So <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so I suppose, yeah, that's what we're going to center the episode on. And we'll, as I, as I said before we start the recording, we'll go wherever the conversation goes. And I know you've written your, your own book and on magnolias, and we might chat about that a little bit. Um, but before we get into the trends, which is going to be the main topic of the of the conversation, just tell us a little bit about yourself um, and, and your gardening history and, and PHS. Sure, sure. So... Uh... Uh, my entire career I've spent in kind of the public garden sector. So I've been at the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society about a little over three years. And prior to that, I worked at uh, Chicago Botanic Garden for a long time, o- over 25 years. I was the curator at the Scott Arboretum at Swarthmore College, which is actually right here in the town where I live. And then Early on in my career, I, I worked at Chanticleer, which is a an internationally famous garden uh, ne- nearby. Uh, today, or, or na- nowadays, at, at PHS, I'm really involved in um, kind of all aspects of uh, the organization. I do a lot of uh, kind of developing of content, like like podcasts, and I do I write a lot of articles. I do a lot of lec- lecturing. Uh, I also do quite a bit of traveling, trying to get to trade shows and visit other gardens and you know, try to get a, a broader sense of what's happening in horticulture today so that I can kind of either bring it back and share it with our, our public gardening staff or share it with our, our PR team, our communications team. Some of it gets then articulated into the Philadelphia Flower Show, which is... Uh, the longest running flower show in the world, as well as the biggest indoor flower show in the world. And it's been going since 1829, wow. uh, almost every single year. And so that's, that's a big event. It's like, you know, Chelsea or Hampton Court show kind of mm-hmm. of that magnitude. Uh, for us, it happens kind of at the end of winter, beginning of spring at, in March. Uh, we have uh, exhibitors that are hyper local and some that are from around the world. We have a, a a florist coming from Singapore, but then we also have uh, one of our major exhibitors is from Germantown, which is a part of of Philadelphia. And th- through all all of our work, uh, PHS uh, really works to advance for impact priorities, which are creating healthy living environments, uh, increasing uh, access to fresh food, expanding economic opportunity, whether that's new jobs or entrepreneurship, 
And then building meaningful social connections. We really feel that horticulture is is the gateway to so so many different uh, types of uh, uh, social connections and just bringing people together regardless of their their ethnicity, their socioeconomic background, or whatever the case might be. So we we really feel it is like a, a great a great conduit. Yeah, it, it's, it's funny. Horticulture it's it's different in some ways around the world, but it's very similar in a lot of ways as well. And you talk about um, you know friendships and relationships and the people within them and the people within horticulture. I've yet to find people in horticulture and this might sound a little bit odd but I've yet to find people in horticulture who are not what we call here in Ireland sound people and and nice people it tends to have I don't know I I, I guess it's the connection that people have with the earth and so on that it it brings that sort of a person but you don't really find you know people who are not nice for want of a better word in the the industry yeah I think it's a great equalizer like I've you know, served on boards and met horticulturists who are, you know, incredibly wealthy. Uh, and I've worked with people that have, you know, virtually no no money. And, you know, it's kind of the same. It, it just kind of levels the playing field, you know, regardless of where you are. And I, I travel the world and, the, you know, the same is true everywhere I go. Mm. Yeah, it's true. Um, so the... Trends for 2023, which we're going to get into, like there's there's trends that we see on this side. And I, I think it's going to be interesting. And I suspect we're going to see a little bit of overlap, although maybe not everything will overlap. So tell us about the, you know, this survey, the initiation of it and sort of the results that you've, you've come to. And we'll... Yeah. So over the course of uh, a year, uh, ma- mainly me, I'm kind of pulling in information and this again is has a lot to do with you know what I'm observing uh either in the garden I do a lot of visiting of gardens both regionally nationally and internationally and and also trying to go to you know I can't go to every garden show on the on the planet but I every year I go I go to some like last year I went to Hampton Court and I went to Florian in the Netherlands. And uh, I do a bunch of, of visit a lot of trade shows in the United States. So I'm kind of pulling all, you know, looking, pulling all that information together and just looking for kind of the uh, the common trends. And for us, I would say, and I'm, I'm sure this is true, you know, uh, in Ireland and England and Europe, Europe, you know, the rest of Europe for sure is, um, you know, what, what we're seeing is, and this is just on, on, has been ongoing and it's probably been ongoing for, you know, at least 15 years, but has really been ratcheted up, ratcheted up lately is the homeowner's interest in gardening to really have ecological I- impact. Mm-hmm. And we're really seeing that in, in a number of ways, like here, uh, People, you know, understand plants that provide pollination functions and they understand what pollinators are, uh, you know, at, at, a, at a fairly basic level. Yeah. You know, we have uh, the monarch butterfly, which is um, uh, endangered. That's been listed this this year. 
So a lot of people are planting plants specifically for that. Uh, One in particular is uh, one of our native milkweeds, Asclepias tuberosa, but there's other other milkweeds and other plants that will support that butterfly in particular. But the fact that there's a butterfly that people, you know, most people, if you showed them a picture of a monarch butterfly, they probably could tell you what what it is. Um, So you're seeing a lot of people, you know, converting either part of their existing garden to maybe a part of the garden that's more habitat focused, maybe more pollinator focused, maybe some shrubs and and other plants for, uh, you know, local birds and migrating birds. Uh, Or, you know, there's, there's kind of trends within trends. One of the trends within this trend is for people just to consider converting 10% of their great American lawn to, to, uh, to a garden or, or, you know, more garden space. And, you know, for anybody, all that would have to be, would be to just extend the, you know, the edge of the bed out by a foot or so. Um, so you don't have to give up your lawn, but, uh, you know, that, that is a, a trend. And a, another kind of trend within uh, the ecological trend is there is a movement called uh, Leave the Leaves. And so, for example, one of our biggest public parks in the United States is Brook- Brooklyn Bridge Park. It's very public, uh, has great gar- gardens, very interactive, but it also uh, supports a lot of ecology in the middle of New York City. And one of the things that they're advocating for is, you know, at the end of the season, and you know, typically here in the United States, you either bag up your leaves and put them out on the curb. Luckily in Swarthmore, you can push them to the curb and they suck them up and, and compost them elsewhere. Some people might compost them on site, but the leave the leaves movement is either just leave the, the leaves in the bed as a, as a mulch from the fall over the winter going into the spring. Some people might feel like that aesthetic is, is too rough. So mm-hmm. kind of a, an intermediate intervention would be to push them out, mow over them, you know, cut yeah. them into smaller yeah. uh, sizes and then remulch your beds with that. And then let those leaves decompose over the winter and turn into um, leaf compost and that then soil in, in the spring. So that's, I would say that's kind of just gaining a, li- a little a little traction. Uh, you know, a lot of people still like a certain aesthetic, and that's that's probably the hardest thing to change. Is there's, you know, when I travel throughout, you know, the UK, Ireland, you know, that that your aesthetic is different overall than our aesthetic. Ours is a bit uh, can be a bit more sterile in that it's typically a house some shrubs across the front of the house, a lawn in the front, and then the sidewalk and the street. Yeah. So, you know, that, that aesthetic is, you know, been ingrained in, in people's minds for, for generations. So, you know, a lot of this is, is creating uh, really kind of a shift in kind of the gardening paradigm. And there was a, it actually made, I think it was on CNN. There was uh, this couple in Maryland, and they lived in, um, uh, we have these things called HOAs, homeowners associations, where it might be 
you know, like a big development and then yeah. they have some sort of governing body and they in their front, they turned their entire front yard into a meadow and the neighbors, you know, flipped out because it was not, you know, their typical landscape that they've been used to. And they fought it. And I, I think they I think they won. But that made national news. And, and, and that was great because then it showed people that, you know, there are alternatives okay. to the way we have gardened for, for so long. It's a funny thing, actually, isn't it? Because, yeah, we're, we're slightly different here in a way, but there still is the same thing where, OK, our, our lawns typically at the fronts are not are not as big, generally speaking, especially right. in, in our towns and our, and our suburbs. They're, they're not as big as that, um, as the, you know, the, the, the typical big house with big lawn to the front that, that we see in, on your side of the Atlantic. Um, but it's a funny thing in that if everybody's lawn at the front or garden here at the front is in in grass, the first person to make that move will be ridiculed because it looks odd and it's not in sequence with everybody else. It's a bit like when the hanging baskets go out here in the summertime, as soon as one person puts them up, everybody puts them up. So right. it's all <laughs> copy, copy, copy. Yeah. And when one person does the, the floral meadow or the, or the native meadow at the front, uh, initially it can look odd and not as neat and tidy. And you do get that little bit of resistance. But if they can spread to two people on the street or three, it might start to become a domino effect where eventually that becomes the norm as opposed to the lawn. Um, yeah. But it, it, it is a at this point in time, uh, and we're definitely seeing that in trends here. At, at this point in time, there is almost like a war or a, a little bit of a, 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 I suppose, a grating together of the natural and the manicured and that's kind of happening at the moment here for sure yeah there's definitely factions you know here you know the 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 native people you know can be you know it's kind of all all natives or or nothing Mm -hmm. i'm more of the mindset and and you know a lot of the work that we do is in very urban areas in philadelphia so i'm really more an advocate for you know, tough, urban tough plants that are that are resilient. Sometimes they're native. Sometimes they're they're not. Uh, you know, we probably lean a little bit more towards native plants, but that's that's uh, not the only uh, plants that we use. We're also looking at which kind of t- ties into the ecological functions. Is you know, with global climate change, we're having such erratic weather patterns. You know, and part of that is hot, hotter summers and then more extended periods of drought. We always have summers where we might have, you know, two or three weeks with no rain. But now we're starting to have even hotter summers, which kind of exacerbates the the drought. And then, uh, you know, periods where it might be four to four to six weeks without rain. So the need to grow. or use plants that are more drought tolerant. And even, you know, I know it's it's hard to really kind of uh, kind of extrapolate uh, all the aspects of global climate change, but I, you know, even in the last 30 years, I've seen certain trees that used to thrive, you know, they just struggle. Cert- certain conifers don't do as well as they used to. A good good example is the the blue atlas cedar. 
You know, mm-hmm. that used to be more of a fairly co- common conifer, and now it's kind of rarely used. And the ones that are big are, are suffering. And, it, you know, it's hard to say what it is. It could be, you know, it could be the heat, for sure. It could be the humidity as well. Uh, could be these massive inundation of of water that we have because we get while we t- typically wouldn't get a hurricane here in Philadelphia, what we get are kind of the tail ends of hurricanes. Yeah. So, say a hurricane comes up through Louisiana, by the time it moves across the country and gets to Philadelphia, it may still dump, you know, ten to fifteen inches of rain, you know, over like a twenty four hour period. And kind of that mass inundation of water, I think, is having an adverse impact on plants. But getting back to kind of the water-wise plants, you know, that's where we, you know, a lot of the ones we are promoting are prairie natives, things that would have grown in the the Midwestern prairies because they have very long tap roots. Mm -hmm. You know, things like a a lot of the the grasses, like switchgrass, panicum, Little blue stem, Schizocarium scoparium, uh, threadleaf blue star is a great perennial, uh, Amsonia, Baptisias, uh, Vernonias. You know, all of those have, have proven to be pretty drought tolerant for the most part. Yeah. It, it's interesting what you said about trees because, right, we don't get the extremes either in, in heat or in, in cold that you guys would, would get. Um, but what we are seeing sort of regularly enough is longer cold snaps in the springtime, but in the summertime or late spring, early summer, we're seeing these extended drought periods and drought for us. Uh, I'm conscious of, of saying drought because I know for you guys, you mightn't even consider what we have at times a drought. <laughs> um, but what we are seeing is that you're getting this spell um, at the very start of the first COVID lockdowns in 2020, we got a really long spell of dry weather. And that was followed the following year by a, a long period as well, but it was at a different time. And generally the big trees that we had here, you know, the native trees, horse chestnuts particularly, I see struggling with it. And year one, they seem to be fine. Year two, you could definitely see, you know, a little bit of a weakening or a, the coloring just wasn't what it should be during that drought period. And then when we got the third year in a row of a drought, again, at a different period in the year, a lot of these fully mature trees died. So I think it was like the knock on effect of the three years, um, because occasionally you might get one year. You know, if you went back 20 years ago, you might get one year that had this long period of weather. But then it will be back to our typical wet, right. wet summer. <laughs> um, but at the moment, we seem to be getting a spell every year. And it seems to be that knock-on effect is definitely affecting, well, a lot of plants, but particularly our big trees are noticeably suffering at times. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. It's like for us, kind of the same thing. It used to be fairly patterned uh, weather with little blips here and there. And now it's, you know, lots of blips during, during the year. Like we, you know, probably for the last 10 or 15 years have had increasingly milder winters, but then we had, you know, one of the coldest winters we've had in, in the last 15 years, this, this, I mean, just for a period of time, but, you know, enough to damage those things that have been un- unscathed for the last 15 years or so, yeah. uh, you know, it got cold all the way down into like the middle of, of Florida and sn- snowed and, I think I saw snow 
at least snowflakes and somewhere in Florida on the, on the beach. Uh, so, you know, it's that, but then it's like, you know, these epic tornadoes and rain events and then mm-hmm. the, 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 the heat and dryness of the summer. And that's, you know, likely only to increase. So we're trying, you know, I think this water wise movement, which also kind of, you know, another thing is kind of a, a sub trend under that. And, you know, it's only, it's it's percolating. People are starting to do it is the use of gravel gardens. So I, mm-hmm. I did a gravel garden in my front yard, which is essentially kind of excavating out like four inches of soil. Okay. Putting in um, like a, a, a granite gravel and then kind of planting plants that kind of grow through the gravel almost hydroponically and anchor in the soil below. And once they're anchored and established, it's kind of multifold. One, they don't really require much mm-hmm. water because when it does rain and all the rain kind of goes right through the gravel to the, the roots below. And because you have this essentially four inches of gravel on top, is almost like a mulch, uh, it's so hot and dry there that weeds don't establish themselves. The only things that establish themselves are things that you'd probably want like poppies or maybe some euphorbias that might seed around. Um, so it's, a, you know, for some people, it's a, a, it's maybe too of a, a modern aesthetic. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it is, you know, we, like the Scott Arboretum where I used to work, they've done quite a bit with kind of gravel garden technology. I think that, you know, you see a fair amount of it in, in Germany. Actually, the, the God mother of gravel gardening is is probably beth chatto you know she yeah. you know she had uh ha, you know they're well still there in um kind of southeastern england um so you know uh, shanna claire has a big gravel garden um jeff happing who's in uh, madison wisconsin he's known in the u.s anyways is the gravel guru so <laughs> so that's that's I, i'd say gradually trending that's it's maybe too much for a lot of homeowners to take on, but you know, I think you'll start to see it in more public install- installations. Yeah, there's not that many here in Ireland, but there is a couple of, and you mentioned uh, a couple of years ago, you were here in November, I think you said, and you called to Jimmy Blake's garden. Now, Jimmy has, has uh, an area which is a gravel garden in effect, and he has been growing lots of cacti outdoors you know. in Ireland on, on granite <laughs> stone. Um, which is where he is as well, because they will get quite a bit of frost and so on up there. So he's done really well. Obviously, they come in in the in the winter time, but um, he's done really well to get that going up there. And then there's a, a very good garden designer in Kilkenny called Des Dial, and he has a gravel garden. But they're not they're not commonplace here, I don't think yet, um, and certainly not in public spaces. It seems to be a very very much a new trend possibly here. Yeah, it's also an opportunity with gravel garden opportunity to grow kind of a new palette of plants. You mentioned cactus. There's quite a few, especially in the Western states in the United States, native cactus. And normally they wouldn't grow here because it would be too hot, humid, and our soils aren't well drained in, enough. But in the in a gravel garden, they all do pretty well. It's not so much a matter of hardiness with us. It's a, a matter of humidity and, and having a well-drained soil. Yeah. Um, so continuing on the garden trends then, uh, I saw on your list house plants. So house plants 
uh, for me, don't do it for me at all. I've absolutely no interest in them, but I know over the last couple of years, certainly, well, particularly since COVID, but prior to that even, houseplants were growing massively in popularity. Uh, are you seeing that still, that growth yes. continuing? Yeah, I, I definitely, like, you know, I used to go to a lot of these trade shows and there there wouldn't be any um, purveyors or nurseries offering house plants. Uh, and now there's, you know, a lot. It's not just the house plants. There's this whole kind of paralleling trend for ho- home decor. So yeah. it's like, you know, monsteras and philodendrons and, yeah. you know, a lot of different kind of aeroids, uh, you know, plants with heart-shaped leaves. And then there's, you know, accessories that go along with those with pots and and so forth. And uh, there's a, a woman in the United States, her name is Summer Rain Oaks. And uh, I met her probably six years ago, maybe seven years ago. And she was just getting into, I mean, she always had houseplants in her apartment in Brooklyn, and then she kind of started retooling her career and really started promoting uh, houseplants, doing videos on them. And I just looked at her YouTube channel last night, and she has 520,000 subscribers wow. on YouTube. So, and th- she's just one of hundreds yeah, of yeah. what I would consider kind of houseplant influencers. And, you know, what's in- interesting about houseplants is, you know, people have been growing them for years. I'm kind of like you. I have a couple here and there, but it's more things that, that I'm overwintering from, from the garden versus house plants. But it is kind of um, an entryway into gardening for people that maybe live in an apartment building and don't have any real access to outdoor space. Uh, so, you know, if if that's if that's the case uh, in like summer rain in her apartment in Brooklyn. She had hundreds of houseplants. She's now moved to a farm up in, in upstate New York, but um, yeah, you know, it's, it's fairly easy. We do these at the Pennsylvania horticultural society. We do plant swaps at a couple of our gardens and those are, those are hugely popular. You know, people bring in just cuttings of like jade plant or pothos or spider plants some people bring in little bags of soil. Some people bring in pots and they just kind of freely exchange plants. And for a lot of the people, it it is their first time to grow some of these things. And, you know, some house plants are, are very easy. So I think that's also appealing to, to a lot yeah. of people. Yeah, but a lot sure. of these companies also, uh, like one of our biggest brands, plant brands in the United States is Proven Winners. And at a recent, at two recent trade shows, I noticed they now have a whole line of new introductions of things like ficus benjamina, which is a super common house plant. So not only are the house plants growing in interest, but a lot of these big companies that do plant breeding are also breeding and selecting uh, kind of new iterations or new versions of, you know, things that, you know, were fairly common, like Sansevieria, the mother-in-law's tongue, you know, there was just one. Now there's dozens of them available. Yeah. No, houseplants and and trends in houseplants, and as you said, houseplant accessories 
the trend has been massive over the last few years. Um, I go to some of the horticultural trade shows in Europe. And yeah, that's one of the trends that you would definitely see houseplant and houseplant accessories just there just seems to be more and more yeah. and, and more dedicated space to them every year. Yeah. So it's it's uh, it's definitely a growing. Uh, it's just a brilliant name you said. It's summer summer rain oaks. Yeah. What a brilliant the second name is R A Y N E, but yeah. you know, uh yeah, it's yeah a, from a it's sound almost, perspective, it's a brilliant name. Yeah, no, it's her her real name. Uh yeah, it's class. Yeah. Um you just go back for to a second to you. So you released a book in 2015. Um, all about magnolias, the plant lover's guide to magnolias. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, sure. Yeah. In so publication. For, yeah. For, as I mentioned before, I worked at the Scott Arboretum at Swarthmore College as the curator there for over 20 years. And they have a, a large magnolia collection. And in my time there, we, we expanded it uh, greatly. And I think through that work, I was asked to join the the board of the Magnolia Society International, which is a an international plant society. I'd say probably there's more members in the U.S. than any other country, but there's a lot in the U.K. And actually, the third third most are in Sweden. Like you know, southern southern Sweden is is warmer than most people would think. Everybody, at least in the United States, if you say Sweden, they think of like people you know dressed in big yeah, big yeah, coats yeah. And, and snow all the time uh so in any case i i got invited to the board and and then i just became more involved in magnolias just through those associations so i got asked to write some articles and it was actually i wrote an article for a magazine that's uh, the magazine of the american horticultural society called american gardener on magnolias and then the editor from Timber Farm said, you know, would you want to expand upon that and write a book? So that's kind of how that that came to be. And the book is, it's just kind of part of a, uh, this Plant Lover's Guide series. It's about 150 pages. I think there's like 100 and something, 130 different magnolias. So it's not the, there are other uh books that have been written on magnolias that are more like the encyclopedia of yeah. all the magnolias. This is uh, it is cut, it was meant to be global so that, you know, somebody in Ireland or Australia or New Zealand or Budapest or wherever, you know, could pick it up and find a handful of magnolias that would do well in, in their region. Same with the United States. Uh, you know, we have some parts of the U.S. that are extremely cold, like the upper Midwest. But then we have obviously areas that are tropical, like southern Florida and southern California. So there's also magnolias in the book that are that are uh, good for, for those parts of the country. Nice. And still in publication. Still in publication. I think you can still get it, of course, on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if you can get it from Timber Press anymore. Um, you know, I, I know that there was a limited printing, so, but I know there's some still kicking around. <laughs> uh, very good. And you, you're not working on anything else book-wise, are you? Now, I, you know, like everybody, I've thought about like, uh, you know, my home garden. Uh, I mean, I know there's lots of people have written books on their home gardens. Not sure if, I mean, I have gone through many trials and tribulations. So that may be just like an expanded article for somebody. 
um, ju- just to take a step back, I know we, there's one trend uh, that's on the list that we haven't covered. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, just to go back to the Pennsylvania Flower Show again. So yeah, the longest running flower show in the world, just because I'm not familiar with the show, as in I've heard of it, but I've never, I'm not familiar with it. I've never been to it. I'm not familiar with the, you know, how, how it works, what elements are within it. So just tell us a little bit more about that, maybe. Yeah. So there's kind of, I would say, three or four major elements. One is the major exhibits. So these are uh, designers that get paired with landscape companies. And the designers can be from all all over the world. Mm -hmm. And we really, also with major exhibits, have been really working to diversify the pool. So there, you know, we have diverse designers and it's that's kind of divided into two groups it's kind of major landscapes and then floral designs which are a significant uh part of that as well and then the the part that i think most people might maybe love the most is called the horticort and that's kind of like um almost like a county fair where people bring individual plants that are in different classes to be judged against each other so for example Cactus and succulents are really big. So there'll be an entire class just on gasterias or entire class on echeverias. So there's about 200 classes. Over the course of the show, there's 5,000 entries. And it's extremely uh, competitive. However, you know, we encourage anybody to bring a plant and uh, put it into the competition. And then it's each class is judged by a panel of judges. And then kind of outside of that, we have some educational exhibits. So that might be school, high schools or colleges and then or plant societies that that uh, have displays. They're smaller than the major exhibits. And then there's a kind of like Chelsea and Hampton Court. There's a massive kind of marketplace area where there's hundreds of vendors of plants and related, you know, tools uh, you know, and all and, and some non-plant items too, but still kind of in, in the horticultural realm. The show runs from March 4th to the 12th. If you have any visitors coming from the US or uh from uh foreign countries, you can find out all the information at phsonline.org. Uh tickets are available now. Um and it's indoors, so it's at the Pennsylvania Convention Center. You know, it's a completely indoor show. Actually, the last two years, for the first time in the almost 200-year history, the show was outdoors because of, of COVID. COVID. We really had to pivot and do an outdoor show for two years in a row, which was very, very different than an than a yeah. indoor show. Um, so I think people are excited to be back in the convention center because for Philadelphians and, and in that region, it it really is like, the beginning of spring, it's a, tradi- a tradition, I think, multi-generational to go to the Philadelphia Flower Show. So, and we get a lot of people that come down from, take the train down from New York City or take the train up from Washington, D.C. Uh, we get uh, hundreds of bus tours, like they're just constantly coming. Like I went to Kuchenhof one year in the Netherlands and I think they said on a busy day they get actually hundreds of buses in a day. We don't we don't get that much in a day, but it is a, a steady stream. Well, and a uh, number of visitors over over the course of the four days, or yeah, it could be between 
200,000 and 250,000. It's a lot of people every day, kind of shoulder to shoulder. Uh, The best way to see the flower show is uh, become a member and you can go to members day, which is, is less people, or you can sign up for an early morning tour, which gets you kind of access before the show even opens and kind of a behind the scenes look at the flower show. So there, there are ways to uh, see the show and not, not be amongst so many people. Yeah. Very nice. I put the link in the, in the show notes anyway. Um, just on trends then. So I think there was one that I didn't cover, which was the last one on your list. And it was the, you know, the, the growing trend towards grow your own or growing your own food. Um, what are you guys seeing there? Right. So uh, the Hort Society, you know, that's been kind of one of our foundational pieces for, for, for many decades is the promotion of growing your own food. So we partner with 170 local community gardens who grow food for themselves, but also contribute to local food kitchens and food banks. So for us, it's always been, you know, uh, a significant part of the work that we do. But again, with the pandemic and people maybe not wanting to venture out to to a market or grocery store, there was an incredible uptick in uh, interest in, in growing your own food, whether it was just, you know, somebody with a big pot on their patio growing a tomato and some peppers or lettuce or whatever the case might be. Uh, or people sharing garden spaces like a, a local community garden. Um, and that 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 was a major uptick during COVID. And I've there's spoken with to um like uh George Ball, who owns Burpee Seed Company, and he said that trend is not not waning at, at all. Um so there's continues to be a great interest in it and there's you know and it's also reflected in the hybridizing work so again in these trade shows you'll see you know there was always an emphasis on vegetables and stuff but now there's an emphasis on uh there's a company plant nouveau which is a kind of a, a promotional company for for new brands and they have some fastidiate apples for kind of small space gardens or uh blueberries that you can grow on the patio or you know there's actually um a ball horticulture company which is probably one the the biggest uh breeding company in the United States they have these little uh tomatoes that they grow that you can actually grow on your windowsill and they'll produce tomatoes. They're they're little tomatoes, but you know the idea is that uh, even a city dweller can grow vegetables, you know, uh, on their on their windowsill. Wow. Uh, and just like you know, in Philadelphia, we have a a nonprofit called a POP Philadelphia Orchard Project, and what they do is they they encourage the planting of you know orchard trees apples and pears and peaches, um, you know, in just like minimal space. So, you know, I would say that's just continues uh, to grow. Um, and I, you know, kind of like the house plant and, and also the nat- the kind of ecological gardening. I think all those are, you know, 
they're not going to be waning anytime soon. I see those as being trends for, you know, for many years to come because many of them are, are so broad in their scope that there's opportunities for expansion on, on, on many different levels. Yeah. And I suppose, yeah, like, and concerns, broader concerns are probably driving them to a certain extent on the food side. There's food quality has been talked about quite a lot. Um, not so much in, in Ireland or in the States. Um, food security has been talked yeah. about a bit. Um, and certainly an, an emphasis on having quality, homegrown, organic type food is, is a trend that we're seeing here. And then on, on the, you know, the side of, of the ecological gardening, you know, there is the, obviously the concerns around, you know, habitat loss and uh, biodiversity loss and things like that. So, yeah, they, they are definitely, they're probably more than a trend at this stage. They're going to be ingrained, I think, for a long time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and um, even introducing, you know, pollinator plants into vegetable gardens, like that's, you know, I would say a trend as well, you know, maybe creating like a border around the vegetable garden that that really encourages pollinators to come in. Yeah. Um, and I think people, you know, you know, during the pandemic, you know, we're working from home and a lot of people, you know, are in office situations where they have ne- haven't really gone back fully to work. So they're just home more. So if you're yeah. working from home, you can just easily take a five minute break and go out and do some gardening. So, you know, I think that's, that's, t- you know, completely fueled the gar the overall, you know, gardening itself is, is continues to trend up, um, which is great. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think that again, that's fueled by people just knowing that they can do their work at, at home. Yeah, for sure. Uh, final question prompted by the fact that you travel to around Europe and and in the US to you know these plant shows and, and international garden shows. Um Buxus and Buxus Blight has been a big issue on this side of the Atlantic over the last few years. And I've seen recently some uh, blight free varieties that are be, have been introduced and there's a bit of excitement around them although they seem to in what i've seen of them so far they seem to not be as tidy looking as you know the, the traditional uh, semi vernons but what's have you come across them or what's your thoughts on them yeah and- yeah i've seen those also at, at trade shows um you know it may be kind of too soon to to tell like when I worked at the Chicago Botanic Garden, we had, uh, they have a lot of boxwoods because it's, you know, fairly hardy plant. And we had very strict protocols on new plants coming in the garden and, and so forth to kind of mitigate against boxwood blight. You know, out here, there's less, I mean, there's still a lot of boxwoods, but, um, you know, I think, um, you know, not that, not that the disease is, is is waning, but maybe because there's so many other diseases and insect problems that it's uh, not as big as uh, news as it was five five years ago. But it is great that there is breeding work being done uh, on boxwoods because, you know, there are species that are native to, you know, places like the Republic of Georgia and so forth that, you know, know, where where they're native, that there could be 
genetics that exhibit uh, a resistance to boxwood blight. So I think we'll see more cultivars come on the market. We've also been, um, I've seen nurseries promoting other plants as replacement yeah. for boxwood. So like we have a native holly called the inkberry holly, uh, Ilex glabra, and there's some real congested forms of that that are being promoted. Or um, I was at Het, Het Lu in uh, the Netherlands and they they have, you know, t- you know, it's a very formal garden. I believe all the edging is now uh, the Japanese holly, Ilex crenata. So, Crenita, yeah. yeah, there are, you know, they're not exactly the same. And if you're a, a diehard boxwood fan, <laughs> you know, only boxwood will do, I'm sure. Uh, but you know, between other species and some of these newer cultivars, I think, you know, we'll probably come out of the, the boxwood blight era with some some bona fide resistant plants and maybe more diversity of of, of genetics, yeah. will, which will he- also hedge against uh, things like uh, boxwood blight. I mean, that's where we get into problems is creating these monocultures and then a disease or an insect insect comes in and just, you know, wipes them out. We had this same issue with, you know, uh, with our elms, with uh, Dutch elm disease, you know, same elms planted, you know, every single uh, neighborhood. And then the Dutch elm disease came in and and killed them all. Okay. And that prompts the question, is there any elms left in in the U.S. now? Yeah, they're they're around. What Even in Swarthmore, there's some beautiful old specimens and, and people be like, oh, God, that must be resistant to Dutch elm disease. And it's it's probably not. It's just been an isolation. So that for whatever reason, the Dutch elm disease has not uh, attacked them. Uh, there's some beautiful ones up at the Arboretum. And they do uh, inject them uh, with, uh, you know, uh, something to, to prevent okay. the Dutch elm disease. Uh, but yeah, you see them around here and there. And if they're like any plant, if they're really healthy, they're less uh, likely to get uh, the disease or insect problems. It's usually ones that are stressed or in decline that the disease kind of comes in and finishes them off. Yeah, for sure. Um, we've talked about quite a few topics. Uh, some of them, some of them, as I said, we as I thought we might uh, had <laughs> nothing to do with what we were going to center the episode on. Um, but it's been a really interesting chat. Um, lots of interesting topics, and uh, yeah, it's it's been interesting to see the trends are quite similar with a few little minor differences in it. So, Andrew, thank you very very much for coming on Master My Garden podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And I like a conversation that's fluid. So I'm glad we're able to touch on some other subjects other than trends. Yeah, for sure. Uh, So that's been this week's episode. A huge thanks to Andrew for coming on. As as I say, it's always interesting to, you know, to go to a different part of the world and hear, you know, what trends are happening. Are the challenges the same? Are the, you know, all of that sort of thing. It's always interesting. And yeah, there is. I think there's a lot that is similar with with obviously a few a few differences. So yeah, a great a great chat, uh, really interesting. I'll put the I'll put the links in the show notes to the to the show and to the website and all of that, so you'll be able to find out more about those things. And uh, yeah, that's been this week's episode. Thanks for listening, and until the next time, happy gardening. Mm-hmm.